Our scripture reading for this week of Advent comes from Micah chapter 5. As we have been doing through the season of Advent, we will have Isaiah Sharp this morning come and put an ornament representing the scripture verse on the, on the Christmas tree. This ornament again was made by Terry Junt. Scripture comes from Micah chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege, allay, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brother shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. The children may be dismissed for Children's Church. They'll gather in the youth center for the remainder of our time in here. We're in the midst of an Advent series, which I'm going to come to in just a moment, but I want to just talk a bit about where we're headed after Advent uh, for you that are here as we have determined kind of the direction that we're going to go for the next weeks. I told you a while back that we were sensing an, an, a need to move into the book of Romans, which is exactly where we're eventually going to head We're just going to have a little longer introduction getting there. I've been sensing that as I look at Romans, that it might first be beneficial to us to to look at 2 Timothy. The reasoning for that is it becomes a bit of an introduction to the book of Romans. If you're familiar with, with 2 Timothy, you know that it is Paul's last letter. Paul isn't at the point of of knowing that he's not going to be here much longer, has to pass on. Um, the uh, the work to another, to Timothy, and feels the weight of that. And I just think it will be helpful as we go to Romans to first go through Second Timothy and get really uh, a glimpse, maybe a greater glimpse of the author of Romans, the one who penned those words. I think it will it will lend itself well to to do that dual kind of thing together. And so we are going to Romans by way of introduction through 2 Timothy, through the the life of the author a bit in 2 Timothy. Uh, There's a number of reasons for that. One is primarily because I do think it's a good introduction to Romans as you see the heart of the one who pins that, that marvelous treatise, one of the greatest books of all of Scripture. All Scripture is profitable in and good for us, but there are some parts of Scripture that are better than others, and Romans would rise to that. But I just think it's good to see his heart and his passion as we do that. Um, and so that's the main reason. The secondary reason is I'm not sure it's wise to begin Romans in the heart of winter. You may think it's spring, but just wait till this week. It is winter, folks, and it's going to come. 
And January is not necessarily always the best time to begin and launch something. So the timing, I think, is the secondary issue in that. So that's where we're headed. We'll talk more about it. Just wanted to let you know, because some of you have already begun to read Romans. You've been talking to me about that, and that that's important. I think you want to be familiar with the entirety of the book before we launch into it. So I'd encourage you to keep doing that. You just want to maybe take a bit of time in to read Second Timothy as well as we launch into that. This morning we're going back to the uh, to the Advent series, the series that is entitled All the Promises Are Yes in Christ. And the goal of this series is to see those promises, but not just to merely see them and know those promises, but to declare amen to those promises. That's the second part of the text where it says all the promises um, are yes in Christ or find their yes in Christ, so that we might do something, so that through him we might utter our amen to God. That's what the scripture says. And what that means is that that we might affirm them, that we might internalize them and say, yes, I believe that promise. I'm going to stand on that promise. I'm going to hold to that promise. And we've been through two of those things in Old Testament pictures, the promises of God. We started in Genesis And the text where it says that the serpent will strike the head of the Messiah, but that Messiah, that that offspring of Mary, will in fact step on the head of the serpent, crush the head of the serpent. And what we talked about, what we looked at is the fact that one day God will banish all evil from the earth. It will be gone. We live in the now and not yet of the kingdom coming and not fully coming and things happen in our lives and and occur and sometimes we don't have all the answers to that. I don't have all the answers to why it happens to certain people and not others and why it happens with the intensity to some that it doesn't happen to others. The big picture of that is because of sin. The world's broken. Small picture is much more complicated and I'm very careful as I walk into that small picture and answers for the small pictures but the hope is that one day it will all be gone. All of the brokenness will be fixed. All evil will be banished from the earth. Satan will, in fact, be put away forever, never, never again to wreak havoc anywhere. And that's important, I think, for us. One of the things that I see happening as I minister over these years is that people start out with um, with the faith but some place in the middle of that, something rises up in their life and, and some difficulty comes. And instead of continuing to trust him, they begin to raise their fist at God in anger. There's one thing to ask why in a humble sense, but that's not the kind of thing that happens sometimes. It's, it's not a why, a humble asking, but it's rather an accusation. God, you're not taking very good care of me. How can I trust you? And so I hope if you're in a circumstance today that doesn't fully make sense, it's hard and difficult, that that it drives you humbly to your God to rest in him and trust him for his grace and not to raise your fist against him. One day, all of it will be gone much sooner than any of us can really realize. And that's I'm careful to say that to somebody who's in the midst of pain and difficulty. But the scripture says this is slight and momentary afflictions. Not that they don't hurt, not that they don't hurt in, incredibly in our lives, but they are, they are slight and momentary in comparison to what God has prepared for us. 
in the day in which he, he banishes all evil from the earth. And then the second week, we, we found that in Genesis. Then the second week, we turned to the text in Isaiah that I quoted during the prayer time this, this morning, the story of King Ahaz and, and the admonition of Isaiah to him to, to not trust Assyria to protect him, not turn to, to man to protect him, but to trust his God and that God would, would be faithful, that, that he could trust a trustworthy God. And the truth of the matter is Ahaz was a terrible king, a terrible leader, and he didn't trust God. He gave lip service to it. He played spiritual gymnastics with spirituality in a sense, but he at the bottom did not trust his God. He turned to Assyria, and he decided that Assyria could protect him better than his God could protect him. And and I hope, again, that we don't we don't fall prey to that. I hope we don't fall prey to just giving lip service to this issue of faith and trusting God, but that we trust him. And the only time you really know if that's the case is when you have to, is when something comes into your life and you're forced to trust him. You're forced to look to him. You you walk out on that limb and all of your weight's on it. You're not resting it anywhere else. And you're trusting him. And I hope that we're learning that in both of those cases to say amen. Amen to the fact that God will one day banish all evil from the earth. And secondly, amen to the fact that we can trust God because he's a trustworthy God. He can be trusted. And and now today we're going to pick up the story uh, and the promises that Micah, the prophet Micah, one of the minor prophets, uh, declares to us another promise, another thing to, to trust on and to rest on and to say amen to. Interestingly, Micah lived as a contemporary of Isaiah in the same time period. So some of the history that I gave you last week, we'll go back over all of that. You can, you can listen to the message online. But Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. He was in the same period of time when the, uh, The nation of Israel was divided, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom um, were there, and the two tribes of the southern kingdom, and and that was called Judah. The northern kingdom was Israel, the the southern kingdom was Judah, and within Judah, the capital city was Jerusalem. In the northern ten, um, uh, ten clans in that particular area of Israel, the, 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 uh, the capital was Samaria. So that's where... Micah finds himself in a, again in a troubled, troubled time where, where those particular, the people of God had enemies from all sides coming against them and pressing upon them. And some of it God was allowing to happen to, to discipline his people. He allowed some of the nations to, to have things occur to his people because of discipline, because of their disobedience. And we pick up, we pick up the story in Micah and we pick up the text that was read this morning. Um, and as we read it, as you heard it today, as we, as we read it on Christmas Eve, in fact, all of these texts that we, um, are reading in and going through in, in this Advent series, all of them are texts that for years we have read on Christmas Eve. And immediately when you hear those texts, you're drawn to the Messiah. You're drawn to Jesus Christ. You, you have a recollection. It's speaking about Christ, speaking about him. Um, that, that's the case for us now 
because we're on this side of the cross and we look back and see how all of those promises, promises like we read this morning, are fulfilled in Christ. But it's not just for us. People, people's might weren't drawn to, uh, to the Messiah just in our day because we have a greater understanding or, or more light or more revelation. But even in that day, they didn't know him as Jesus Christ, but they knew, the people of that day knew that this text was written about the Messiah. It was a, it was a text about the Messiah. We, we get that from places in the New Testament. If you go to Matthew chapter 2, you read the story in Matthew chapter 2 of, of the account of Herod summoning the wise men as he called the wise men in. Um, he, he was, he was concerned about accounts that he had heard. And in the context of that, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, you hear the scribes and the Pharisees, or the scribes and the priests, it says, are talking about, uh, about where Jesus was born. And they quote the text we're in. They interestingly misquote the text. The, the quote that's in Matthew chapter 2 is a, is misquoting the text that we read. Listen to what they said when they were asked where the Messiah was to be born. They said this, O you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Most of that was correct, but there's a line in there that says, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. That's that They're misquoting it. But they're referring to it. They knew, they knew that that text in Micah was a reference to the Messiah, where the Messiah was to be born. If you read in John chapter 7 and verse 42, there was a division among the people. In John chapter 6, Jesus is at the, the pinnacle, really, of his earthly ministry. More people are following him than in any other time. After John chapter 6, that number begins to dwindle. And much more confusion begins to enter in and, and, and kind of discussion and all those kinds of things and people walking away from him. But in the midst of that, in John chapter 7, as the people were trying to come to grips with who Jesus was, um, this particular scripture or, or the, the quote from John chapter 7 verse 42 is this, has not scripture said that the Christ comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so in John 7, as they debated who Jesus was, they knew that whether or not he was the Messiah or not, they weren't sure, but they knew the Messiah was to come from Bethlehem. And so when this particular text was read, when the people heard this text, they knew it was a reference to the Messiah, and it is. It's a reference to the Messiah. It's a reference to the promises that the Messiah is uh, is bringing and uh, so therefore, what I want to do this morning is I want us to take time to, to talk about the promise that we find here. And again, to, to be able, I hope at the end of it, to say amen to that promise in our lives. That you can say amen. May it be so. I believe it. That's the goal of these particular messages. So the question we ask this morning is, what does this particular text, what does it teach us? about the promises of God or the promise of God. First of all, I think it teaches us that that those promises, more than anything else, should humble us. We came out of the book of James just a few weeks ago 
where the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We, we spent a lot of time talking about that. And, and I'm here to say again to you that, that uh, pride and Christianity are oxymorons. They are, they are diametrically opposed to one another. There is no place for it in the Christian life. The gospel, if we really understand it and it, it permeates us, a better way to say the more it permeates us, the more it humbles us. And, and as you walk with God, if you don't walk in greater and greater humility, you're not comprehending the gospel. It is not fully saturating you. You're not spending enough time thinking about it and resting in it. Because when you really see the gospel, when you really see what God has done in saving a people, it absolutely humbles us. That's where it leads us. All throughout scripture, pride is, is, is uh, come against again and again and again because it is an oxymoron to living the life of faith. Where do we see that? Look at it with me in verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You see where the misquote comes? The, the quote in, in uh, Matthew was, was greatest. But here, this is the true word of Micah, where it says, But you, O Bethlehem, were too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel. Why did God choose Bethlehem? I think it was to make a statement. To make a statement that, that uh, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Bethlehem was the humblest of places for Christ to be born. You know the story. You know that God orchestrated so that that Mary and Joseph, who were from Nazareth, made the trip to Bethlehem because that's where the Messiah was to be born. Salvation, we must understand, is not about the achievements of men. It's about the achievement of God. It's about the mercy of God. And so Bethlehem says it's not about the achievements of man. God chose that humble place to reiterate that. He did it to, to affirm what Paul knew in Corinthians. God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so, so. There's a reason for that. Why did he choose Bethlehem? So. No human being might boast in the presence of God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's no place for boasting if you're a Christian today. It's all God's mercy. It's all God's mercy of him allowing your ears to hear and then his Holy Spirit taking to to cause that word to be implanted within your heart. God does that. God brings us to life by his mercy. One person has written it this way. I I think it's good. Listen, he says, God chose a stable, 
so that no innkeeper could boast, he chose the comfort of my inn. God chose a manger so that no woodworker could boast, he chose the craftsmanship of my bed. He chose Bethlehem so no one could boast of the greatness of their city. And he chooses to set his mercy freely on a people to stop the human mouth from boasting. Charles Wesley said, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? How can it be? Why me? Why Why does God let me understand this when someone who hears the same message doesn't? There's no place for boasting that every mouth should be stopped. That's the fundamental reason, I think, for the promises of God, that they are about God. They are about God fulfilling those promises by his mercy. It strips us of self-righteousness. It takes it away. The blessings of the Messiah are not bestowed on the basis of greatness or merit. Bethlehem wasn't great. God's speaking to us. It's telling us that. Secondly, not only, not only do the promises humble us, they should humble us, that, that God chose Bethlehem for that reason. Secondly, the promises are yes in Christ. This is reiterating, really, the whole basis of the series that we're in, this whole Advent series. But it's true. All of the promises are yes in Christ. Christ is the yes of all God's promises. They're all fulfilled in him. He fulfills them all. That's a wonderful promise. Um, If you were to listen to this particular statement of Micah, if you'd have been in that day or heard it read later, you immediately would have thought of, of, uh, of David, King David. Because Bethlehem was the city of David. It's where he was born. It has reference to the great ruler where it says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who will be ruler over Israel. People would have thought of David again. They also would have thought of David when the reference to that he shall shepherd his people. So, so David would have been and come to mind here. But also... The promises made to David, the promise that was made to David is really what would have come to mind. To these people, they would have, they would have remembered, they would have heard the promise uh, that was made to David out of the Old Testament. Listen to what it says. I will raise up your offspring after you. This is the promise to David. Who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The amazing thing about Micah is that he reasserts the certainty of this promise, not at a time when Israel was rising to greater power, but at a time when Israel was sinking toward oblivion. A time when the ten tribes of the north had been carried away. That happened during Micah's day. They were carried away. It was a gloomy time, but in the midst of the gloom, in the midst of the gloom comes glory. 
In the midst of the gloom comes these glorious statements that the people would have known were statements to reaffirm the promise that was made to David that his kingdom would be forever. And never was there a time when it looked like that promise was not going to be fulfilled. Never a more difficult time in the life of the people to whom that promise had been made. God was reaffirming that all of the promises are yes, and that yes will be in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, although they didn't know that's what his name would be. Thirdly, the promises remind us that God is the good shepherd, that God is a good shepherd to his people, a good shepherd. People needed to know that. They were in a hard time. They were in a difficult time. It was, it was gloomy. They needed to be reminded that this is a good shepherd. It says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. God is a good shepherd. And he was going to send one who would shepherd his people. Um, it's interesting how this shepherd is described. Look at the text. Look at, look at how it describes it. It says this about him. He shall stand. He shall stand, in verse 4, not sit. This is no weak shepherd that they have. No shepherd who's going to just coast along. This is a shepherd who will stand and shepherd his people. He will protect them. He will care for them. He will watch over them. It says later that it says he will shepherd um, his flock in the strength of the Lord. He will stand and he will shepherd him in the strength of the Lord. Again, of, of might and of power. Not only a good shepherd, but a shepherd that can get the job done. A shepherd who will provide for his people. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death... Go back to the the 23rd Psalm. He feeds his people. He feeds them with grace. He will take care of them. People needed to hear that message, that God was still watching over his people, caring for his people, even in the midst of the difficult time they were in. He would do it in the strength of the Lord. He would overcome every obstacle. There was nothing that would keep this shepherd from accomplishing what he set out to accomplish. As I as I read that, think of I think of the obstacles that must have come against the people. But but I I bring it to my own heart. Bring it to your heart. Do you feel like there are obstacles as you try to live out this Christian life? As you try to walk with your God, that there are obstacles that come, difficulties that come. There are. And he will stand against all of them. He will help us with all of them. But, but that isn't as hard for me to believe that. Where I really have sometimes struggle of resting and trusting him is when I look at my own life and I think, God, will you even overcome the obstacles in my heart? That heart that that uh, is so fickle, <clears throat> that heart that's prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. That's where 
That's where it really meets the road, isn't it? We can, we can think of God removing our external obstacles, but what about those internal obstacles? What about the internal obstacle of our own heart that is so fickle? I've made the statement often, and, and I, I believe it with all of my heart. If God doesn't save me, I'm a goner. If his grace isn't sufficient, I'm a goner. He is the one who will do it. I won't do it. God will do it. He will overcome your heart. He'll, he'll help you to battle it. He'll bring grace to you. A number of years ago, somebody made a statement to me. I reiterated it to the, to the leadership board a while back. But they, they said to me, and they were sincere. They said to me, their fear was that one day they would wake up. They, they were a believer. They would profess to be a believer, a follower of Christ, part of the church. But one of the things he said to me, it was riveting. He said, I, my fear is that one day I'll wake up and not believe anymore. God won't let that happen to his people. He won't let that happen to his people. He will remove every obstacle, even that obstacle that we will continue to persevere in the faith. That's my hope, that God will keep me persevering to the end. The scripture says, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. Does that mean we take Christ and then we, we work, and if we work hard enough, we persevere? I, I believe even the ability to persevere is God doing it in us. He works in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure, which is to persevere. I will persevere by the grace of God. And my hope is that. My hope isn't that I will be strong enough to persevere, but that God will be strong enough to persevere in me. That's the gospel. You see how that contributes back to the first statement? How it humbles us? That even your ability to continue to persevere in the faith is akin to God doing it in you. Salvation begins... By grace, and it is sustained by grace, by God's grace working in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He who began a good work will bring that work. Who will bring it to completion? He will. The day of Christ Jesus. I, I, I have to rest there. I have to land there. I hope you do too. I hope you can trust God and do trust God to do that for you. He will shepherd his people. And then it says in the end, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. God will remove every obstacle. He will, his glory will fill the entire earth one day, fully, fully, as the water covers the sea. And then finally, it humbles us. It, uh, it declares to us the promises humble us. They, they declare that all of them are yes in Christ. Promises declare that he will shepherd us, that he will persevere in us, that he will keep us believing. And finally, they promise peace. The last verse says, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. Christ shall be their peace. One day there will be total peace. On earth. I think there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And I think, 
I think we will reign upon the earth in peace. Sin will be banished. No longer will sin taint things. I think in many ways it will be uh, uh, going back to what it was in the beginning when God looked out and it was very good. No, I can imagine that because of the fact that we can't imagine a world without sin. The only, the only world we have ever seen, the only world we've ever observed on this earth is a world tainted by sin. More tainted by sin than any of us can imagine. But one day it will be gone. One day it will be no more. One day there will be total peace. No more war. War between one another. War with my heart. It will all be gone. We will not even, and and we can't imagine this, we will not even be tempted to sin. We will not even be enticed to sin in any way. And none of us know what it's like to live in a world like that of total peace. But, but it's more than just that. The peace that it's talking about is more than just that ultimate peace, I think. And, and where I want you to go as I close this morning is to Micah chapter 7. I want to read these words because Micah continues to speak of some glorious things and he does it as he closes his book in Micah chapter 7, verse 18. I read this to my Sunday school class this morning. I want to read it to you. Because the greatest enemy of peace, the greatest enemy of peace is our sin. And listen to what God says, or Micah says about God. Who is a God like you? In other words, there, he's really saying there is no God like you. There is, there's not a God like you. You are, you are a God above all gods, small g. And this is the reason. Just just listen to this. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? You feel your transgression this morning? Do you know your transgression? Do you know your sin? To hear that God is going to pass over it is, is really, really good news. Good news. For the remnant of his inheritance... He does not retain his anger forever. Sometimes people want to say sin's not a big deal. That's not a biblical concept. Sin is a big deal. And in fact, God is angry because of sin. But not forever, not forever will he be angry. Because he delights in his steadfast love. God, God is Loving and angry, which we can't comprehend. Both. If you stress one without the other, you don't really see this God. But it says, he will not retain his anger forever because he delights in his steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will tread our sin underfoot. That's the glorious good news of the gospel. Listen, listen to what Romans chapter 3 says. This is Paul's writing to us. He says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, He has passed over former sins. Remember it said back here, 
who is a God like this, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? That left God liable. That particular statement there left God liable because, God, how can you pass over my iniquity and be just and be holy? Here it says, for a time in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, but not forever because there was going to be a day when his anger would be gone against sin. And, and there was coming a day when something was going to occur that would allow God not to have to extract that penalty for that sin upon the people who committed it. In his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. That God continued to be just, but also could justify. He could pass over sins because someone else, the Messiah, the shepherd, the good shepherd, bore those sins in his body. I hope this morning, I read this to my Sunday school class this morning, and I, I, I asked them, what comes to mind? I hope the gospel comes to mind. I hope what Christ has done comes to mind. I hope all the things that, that over the years we've talked about, about the gospel and about Christ providing a righteousness for us, come to mind. That's the glorious good news of the gospel, that, that the, the greatest promise the greatest promise of all that we really talked about in these days is that we can have peace with God. Peace because of the work of Christ. The other promises won't mean anything to you unless you know that one, unless you know you have peace with God. For him to banish evil one day won't, won't be very comforting to you because you'll be part of the one who's banished if you don't know peace with God. Part of the promise of being trusting a trustworthy God is that that trustworthy God is, is a just God and will settle all accounts and all injustice will be put in its right place one day. But if you don't know peace with God, you'll, you'll suffer that justice. You'll suffer the penalty of that. So you can't have those other two promises and really rest in them until you know this is true, until you know It's true for you that he's pardoned your iniquity. He's passed over your transgression. He does not retain his anger against you. He delights in his steadfast love and he will has compassion and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. They will be gone and are gone if our hope is in Christ. I hope this morning that you know that promise and I hope with all of your heart you can say amen to that promise. And amen. Let's stand and sing together. Prophets promised long ago A king would come to bring us hope And now a virgin bears a son the time to save the world has come. Humble shepherds run in haste 
to see the one the angels praise. In cattle stall they find a girl who holds the hope of all the world. Emmanuel has come to us. The Christ is born. Alleluia. Our God may flow to raise us up. Emmanuel has come to us. As he sleeps upon the hay, he holds the moon and stars in place. Though born an infant, he remains the sovereign God of endless days. Emmanuel has come to us. The Christ is born. Our God may flow to raise us up. Emmanuel has come to us. For all our sins, one day He'll die to make us sons of God on high. Let every heart prepare Him room, the promises have all come true. Emmanuel has come to us, the Christ is born, propitiation for us, that he turned away what was meant for us. Lord, we rest in that, that he is our peace. He is our peace. And on that foundation, we can look forward today when you banish all evil from the earth. Lord, I pray this morning that, that uh, we rest we rest in Emmanuel. 
as our peace and say amen to the glory of God. And all these people did say, amen, you're dismissed.